I'm Jessica, and this is Homecoming, finding yourself in life's little moments. Hi, dear listener. So I'm sitting at home, 1130 at night, and... I was trying to go to sleep, but I thought I'm going to come out and endeavor to make this podcast. It's the third podcast, I think in a sense, in a series. The previous two have built upon and described the experiences that I had in marriage and the trauma and difficulty that I endured. And really for the first time, just two days ago, when I posted my podcast called My Safe Deposit Box, that was really the first time that I had spoken in any really clear way about what I endured in marriage and why I ultimately had to leave. And then as... I began to receive responses to that from both men and women. I was just stunned and moved and really exposed (laughs) the truth (laughs) through what I described and really not knowing what the result of that would be and feeling nervous. The responses have been enormously booing to me and heartening and inspiring because not only do they help me to feel that I'm not alone and that there's so many other people out there who long to also feel not alone and who have also similarly had experiences like mine but I'm beginning to sort of have a taste of what might actually give rise to the beginnings of a really new world where men and women are standing, you know, together, each in their own way, together in the face of the truth, in the light of goodness, in the light of love and for the sake of our future here on this beautiful blue planet. So this morning, I had a very interesting morning. I spent what would turn out to be two and a half hours sitting at a little cafe overlooking a kind of sheltered bay in this area where I live, this beautiful peninsula, this beautiful place. And the sky was blue, and there were very few people around. It was just a weekday. It's not a a vacation time or holiday time or anything. But I spent this morning sitting with a friend. So she has become a really dear person to me here in this new place, in this new life. And what's interesting is that particularly since I left my marriage three years ago, Some of the people who have become my dearest friends are people who are over 80. A couple of them are over 90. 
And what I treasure about these friends is that they've come from really a different era, a different age. And their care for me has been so nurturing, you know. These are women. They could be like my mom. And what they bring to my life is something so beautiful and simple. You know, they grew up way before the time of the iPhone, way before the time of the Internet, way before the time of so much of what has pushed our lives to work faster and faster and more and more, you know, speedily. And they're honest people. So as I was really trying to establish a ground in myself and my life, free from the trauma that I experienced, I found that these friendships were really vital, that I could trust these women. So here in my new life, I have a friend who's about 80, and I sat with her, as I often do, for tea. And she will often treat me, you know, to juice, uh, fresh carrot juice or tea. This morning, we had eggs and toast, each of us. And she's so kind, and she treated me to that. So we were sitting at this little outdoor cafe and looking at the water. And then she gave me this little present. And it was wrapped in a paper bag. And it was sort of interesting. I had no idea, you know, what it would be. And I opened it carefully as we were sitting there having our eggs and toast. And when I opened it, I literally gasped. It was a a little bag, a little sort of zippered bag, just a little bit bigger than the size of a wallet, with a little handle on it, and a wonderful sort of paisley paisley kind of um, pattern and then printed letters on the front and she said oh you know when I saw this I thought of you I knew I had to get it for you I saw it in the shop and those printed letters said Jessica she believed she could so she did And I could hardly believe that she was giving this to me, that she had found this, that there was such a thing as a little bag somewhere with my name and those words on it. And I said, oh my gosh, I said to my friend, I can't believe how, oh, perfect this is. And all she did was smile and kept pointing to me and to the bag, to me and to this little bag, like that was me, like that message was what she knew my life to be, and that she had to get that little thing for me because that was the emblem of my life, that that's what she knew and thought about me. That's what she felt about me, that this is who I was, that I believed that I could, and so I did. And I think what she was thinking is that, you know, I had come out of all of this travail and landed here and started a new life from scratch, literally, a year and a half ago. Come here to this far-flung place 11,000 miles from where I'd originated 
come through thick and thin and started this new life. So there we were, sitting at that little cafe, eating our breakfast and my having opened this incredible present that says, Jessica, she believed she could, so she did. So I said to her, I said, you know, I can't quite, <laughs> I can't quite believe the timing of this because what's just happened just two days ago is that I posted for the first time a podcast. She knows I do podcasts. And it was about, in the most revealing way to this point, far more than in the past, I actually spoke in a direct way about what I'd been through in my marriage. And I said I was really nervous because I really didn't know what would happen, you know, what would transpire, what the responses would be. And I began to tell her about what women were saying to me in response, how they had been through the same thing as I had, and how getting these responses made me feel just in awe of how much women have been through and how much we've been silenced and have been held and hold, held our, have held ourselves in silence and separate from each other and from ourselves and from life and from the world. And she said, I know, I know. So my friend is 80 years old, so she's seen a lot of change in her life. And we reflected on how so much of what happens for people, especially for women, but so much of what happens is behind closed doors and is never brought out into the light of day. And I said to her, I said, you know, the words of Jesus would just keep coming to me in this whole long time that the truth will set us free. And she then started to reflect back. And she said, you know, when I was just a little girl, growing up in this area. Perhaps it was the 30s or 40s, you know, not quite a, quite a while ago. She said, I'll always remember something. She said, I'll always remember this moment. I was walking near my house, and there was a neighbor's house, and I was walking by my neighbor's house, and she said, I was hearing, I began to hear, I didn't understand what at first I was hearing, but then I began to hear screams and cries coming from that house. And I realized that it sounded like the woman that I knew lived in there. And, but I couldn't understand what was really going on. I was just a young girl. You know, what would be happening in there? And then some other women, neighbors walked by and were talking to each other and clearly heard the same thing. And one of them said to the other, oh, he's giving her what for. And at that moment, I realized that that woman was being beaten. So this morning when my friend was telling me this, as she was telling me that, she recounted it like it was yesterday like it was yesterday, and that's how it felt when I heard it. It was as if that had just happened yesterday, that memory from decades ago, 
from the time when my friend was just a girl, her memory of these things. So, dear listener, what happens when a woman comes out of that? What happens when by the grace of God and their own perseverance and whatever else might make it possible for them to emerge from a situation in which they've experienced profound trauma. What happens, you know, then? That's what this podcast is about. What happens when you emerge and then sort of see yourself in the light of day, then kind of shaken and scarred and traumatized? What happens now? What happens I'll always remember as I was going through all this that there was a movie that would keep coming to my mind and it was like an iconic movie, theme. It was called The Shawshank Redemption, that was the movie, and it was about a man who was imprisoned unjustly. And this was back in the 40s, and the uh, conditions of that prison were medieval, you know, and the abuse was horrendous. And there he was, having been imprisoned unjustly. And over a period of years, very smart man he was, he began to figure out a scheme, a plot, a plan for his escape. And slowly, methodically, patiently, over one year after another, he began to enact his plan. It took him years. And finally, on the night of his escape, he had to crawl through a quarter mile of the worst, most awful foulness, the sewers of the prison, to get out. And he gets out in the middle of the night in the middle of a thunderstorm, the lightning crashing around him, the thunder rocking the atmosphere, and crawls out of that awful place, full of awfulness, coated with foulness, into the rain. And the rain begins to wash him clean. It's the most extraordinary image, dear listeners, and that image has stayed with me because he puts his head up to the heavens and opens his arms and allows the rain to wash him clean. So when I left my marriage, not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing where I would go, I thought to call a place, a spiritual place, a very famous spiritual place in the vicinity of near where I lived. And that place was called the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy. And I knew them there because I spent a lot of time praying in this beautiful chapel they had. I spent time praying in the garden I'd spent time there writing my memoir about my dear, beloved Flora. And they knew me. 
And I, I made my first call, you know. You know when they say you have one call? <laughs> well, I probably had more than one call, but I made one call, and my first call was to them. And I said, do you have a place I can stay? Because I need one. So they said, actually, yes, you know, we actually do. It's a little unusual because our guest house is usually full, but it just so happens that there's room and you can stay there. So I drove with the few belongings that I had to that beautiful place. It's up on a hill. And I unloaded <laughs> my few belongings and took the key from their office. You know, they gave me the key to my little room. And I walked up the stairs and, and I opened the door to my little room and I put my things on my bed. And I lay down. And there was just silence. Peace. It was just me. So there I was, you know, that was the beginning, my first night there. I'll always remember looking out. And the trees didn't yet have leaves. It was in April, cold, still cold, but still there was the hints of the bare beginnings of spring. And I could see the moon shining through the trees, not yet with leaves. And the, but the branches and the branches were kind of flowing or waving slightly in the breeze. I could see that. And it was just me and the moon and those trees and my bed. And over time, though, I began to realize, you know, and this is the question, what happens when you come out of a situation when you've been ensnared and conscripted and enslaved to the darkness, the discontents, the unresolved, unacknowledged pain and anger of another person. Like being caught in a spider's web, you know, your little feet stuck for no fault of your own. What happens when by the grace of God and your own perseverance, like that character in that movie, that I described to you. What happens when you get yourself free? What happens is that you come out scarred, like you've been through a battle, and you may not even realize just how scarred you are. And I didn't, because I still had so much to do to get myself really free, to go through all of the legal ups and downs and battles it was really, really hard. But I'll remember one day um, where I understand, and this is kind of fast-forwarding, I'll always remember one afternoon. At that point, I was staying in an apartment. I had moved from the shrine because they really didn't have people stay more than a few days, and I had ended up staying three weeks. And so I ended up living in an apartment overlooking a main street in the community in which I, you know, had been living. And uh, looking out onto the street, it was now already May, so the weather was warmer. I had opened the window, and um, it was kind of a Saturday afternoon. 
And nobody knew that I was living in this place. I actually kept my whereabouts really held really tight. Just a few close friends, like four close friends, knew where I was. Because I really felt I had to do that for my well-being. And I'll remember looking out the window, just looking out onto the street. What was beautiful about that is I could kind of survey the street and the goings-on, the comings and goings, the traffic, but nobody knew I was there. It was kind of like one of those two-way mirrors where you can see out, but nobody can see you. And, But I was looking down, and it was a Saturday afternoon, and there were pedestrians, and there was a you know, cars going by. And a man was crossing the street. He was about to enter into the crosswalk. So there was a crosswalk below where I was where I was living right there. And a crosswalk is, as you know, probably um, a place where the pedestrians have right of way. So when they enter the crosswalk, the cars have to stop. You know, they should stop so that the person who's walking is safe. So this man entered the crosswalk and a car was approaching and clearly should have seen him, you know. It was obvious he was in the crosswalk, the, the pedestrian. And the car just kept going and suddenly slammed on his brakes at the last minute, even though it was very clear that that man was in the crosswalk. The car was just, you know, the driver was either oblivious, whatever it was, And the man jumped back because he was close to being hit by the car. And then, and then the pedestrian, the man, he 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 said, "You know, what did you do? You know, you almost hit me." And then the man in the car rolled down his window and began to yell in that man who was crossing the street in the most foul way, with all sorts of awful, awful things. And when I saw that, I reeled back from the window because that was what had happened to me. I would suddenly be yelled at with a kind of unspeakable anger and hostility for no reason, for no reason. And when I saw that happen below me on the street, I suddenly realized at that point that I had post-traumatic stress syndrome because my reaction was one of utter terror when I saw that happen before me down there with that driver. My reaction was utter terror, a kind of, you know, it, it, it wasn't held in my mind, in my heart, in my, it wasn't held in my mind. It was something way deeper than that. It was like below thought, you know. It was held in my body in some way that wasn't rational, that I didn't even realize it was there. So it would be in the next year or year and a half that, as it would turn out, I was diagnosed with PTSD by two doctors, one of whom was in the United States and then ultimately here in Australia. And... What are the symptoms? You know, so what happens when you come out of a situation where you've been traumatized and you carry the scars of that? You know, what are the symptoms of PTSD, which I think so many people must have? 
So many women must have. Well, in my experience, you know, there are a lot of symptoms. Like the kind of fear that I just described to you. Panic, paranoia, insecurity, instability, you know, where you register a situation in ways that are um, reactive rather than uh, clear and rational you, you react because you're reacting to something that's stored in your body, to the trauma that's been stored, and you can't actually be objective about what's going on. It's a very strange experience. So, dear listener, I have to say that as I'm telling you all this, I just got an email from a very dear friend, one of my dear friends back in the States, a woman who is in her later years and has helped carry me through all of this, and she said, I feel for you that family is no longer. I feel for you that family is no longer. And part of my journey, you know, is that at the same time that I was leaving my marriage, I was also experiencing enormous abuse at the hands of other people in my life. I mean, it was really something. It was like a kind of 360-degree situation. And from people in my family and even and other people, you know, there was bullying going on. You know, I was being bullied on, on Facebook, if you, you know. I mean, there was so much going on. It was unbelievable. And I'll always remember this moment, you know, I was talking to a priest at the National Shrine of Divine Mercy, someone who began to become a a real confidant for me and a real support. And I remember going in and talking with him amidst all of this and saying, you know, I can't believe what's happening. I, it was so bad, frankly, dear listeners, that I, I wasn't a, I wasn't having any luck finding a counselor who could grapple with the extent of it. That was the truth. And I'll always remember sitting there with this young priest, beautiful person, beautiful man, and him looking up after he listened to everything that was going on. He looked up at Jesus on the cross above the door of the little office where we were sitting. And he said, Jessica, he said, you're in good company. And dear listener, that was in some ways the beginning of simultaneously my healing and of my recognition of the extent of what I was going through and had gone through. It was really something. He had created the context, the bandwidth, let's say, the space to hold the suffering that I was enduring and had endured and would continue to endure. He had created for me a way to feel what I was feeling and begin to just be, 
you know? How does one heal from that? It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. You know, it was so bad that during that time, I was in such a state of stress that I would grind my teeth, that I would go to sleep at night and wake up with my jaw so clenched that I couldn't move my mouth. That was how fearful in the state of fear that I was and stress and and anxiety. You know, it was just one thing was happening after another, even in the process of my trying to extract myself. And at that time, interestingly, one of the things that helped kind of keep me going was playing the piano, which I do. I play the piano for people often in situations like, you know, assisted living residences and nursing homes and for people with disabilities. And also I was playing at that time at a psychiatric residence, a psychiatric residence that was a lockdown residence. That means that the residents there did not have the freedom to leave because of their situations. And I would go in. I started out by going in once a month. And frankly, dear listener, I found that experience so extraordinary that I asked them, I said, let me keep playing. Let me play more here. I asked them if I could play every week. So every week during this period of time of my beginning to release myself and make my way through all of the legal travails and all of the legal demands and uncertainties and stresses and abuses that were still happening, I would go in every week to the psychiatric residence unit and play for these people. And those people began to feel to me like family. There was something so extraordinary about that experience. I had both the sense of a an appreciation for them that I would have never felt before because I felt in myself how tenuous our sanity is. If someone goes through just enough and they might not have you know, for whatever reason, the ability to hold themselves together for no fault of their own, they could end up in a place like that because they simply could no longer cope. And I understood for the first time in a way why those people might be there. So my playing music for them, and we would sing, became one of the most profound, healing, incredible experiences of not only that time, but of really my life. And I'll always remember the last time that I played there before I was coming to Australia, and I couldn't tell anyone what was going on. You see, this was one of the excruciating, heartbreaking aspects of this, is because of my situation, I couldn't tell anyone why I was leaving I just had to say, you know, my life is changing and I'm no longer able to do this. I couldn't tell them what had happened to me. I couldn't tell them that I was going to go far away to try and start a new life. I couldn't share any of this with them. I could only give them the bare bones. But I'll always remember one man coming up to me at the end with tears in his eyes, knowing that that was the last time he'd see me. And with a kind of dignity, dear listener, that I can hardly describe to you, 
He shook my hand and said, Thank you for your music. It was really a moment. There was such a sense of him pulling himself together in this kind of straight acknowledgement of me as he extended his hand towards me and wished me goodbye. And another woman came up to me and said, Jess, she said, I'll miss you. Always remember to do something fun and eat something yummy. And those were the words that were given to me on the last day that I played at that place before I left for Australia to start a new life. So, dear listener, I come to now another topic, and that is love. So how the hell does one begin to navigate the realms of love? Is it possible to come out of a situation like that and actually begin to heal in such a way that one might even could even imagine having any other relationship ever again, you know. How the hell can that possibly happen? Can one even begin to imagine navigating the realms of love having come from that? Because I think about it sometimes. But the reason I'm asking this question is because something really strange happened about a week and a half ago. A week and a half ago, I got a letter, an email, completely out of the blue, all right? Completely out of the blue. And the subject line of the email, I didn't know who wrote it. I didn't recognize the sender's name. But the subject line was, your beautiful podcasts. And I was really curious because, you know, I don't make my email address public, number one. And I didn't know who this was. So I opened the email and began to read. And this is what I read. Dear Jessica, the lyrical beauty, insight, and gorgeous musicality of your homecoming series of podcasts has meant a great deal to me over the past months. For me, there there are many layers for which I must thank you, one of which is that I grew up in the same town as you did, and many of the memories that you share echo experiences that are forever a part of who I am. I'll always remember the piano performances that you did at your piano teachers because for a bit of time I was studying with her too and I was there at those recitals. And your performances in that amazing house 
on those June afternoons were striking enough that I remember thinking at the time that the technical precision you brought to your accomplished playing didn't quite hide a wildness of soul that continually nudged the edges and undercurrents of the piece of music towards something unique and exquisite. The music barely contained you. That's what I heard a half century ago. So, dear listener, this is this is a part of the email that I received from somebody, a man now, who remembered me from all those years ago and was curious, almost 50 years hence, what had happened to me, what had what my life was doing, what I was doing in my life, and he found these podcasts, thought to email me. And when I opened that email and began to read what I just read to you, dear listener, I began to weep. Because what that email did, what that message did, was that it reconnected me to myself. It was like a time capsule back into the beginning of where I came from, of who I was. It was a reflection. It was like suddenly I opened this email and it was like a mirror had been presented to me by this person to say, this is what I remember, and for me to see that that's who I am in that reflection. You know, that's, frankly, dear listener, the greatest gift that I think one human being can give another is that kind of beautiful reflection of the soul of who they are. So over the days that would unfold after I got that email, I wrote back and I said, you know, I have to tell you that your message is possibly the most beautiful thing I've ever received. And it comes at an extraordinary time. And there was some back and forth, you know, to the point where I began to feel that I could trust this person with telling them that, you know, what had actually really happened to me. So I laid it out, you know, I laid it out. A bit like I'm doing now in these podcasts, I laid it out. And then I received another message, and that message said, I am so very, very sorry I understand how after that experience you felt you had to flee the world that you had made. It's all so strange hearing your words because I was half a century ago an observer not just of your brilliance but of your sensitivity. Everything in me now and always has felt that that level of sensitivity should be cherished, nurtured, protected, Engaged, yes. Challenged, yes. But not trifled with. Not brutalized and not deceived. I'm deeply, deeply sorry. And if ever in the future, Jessica, you find yourself needing something, I'd go a long way to help you. I think you're one of the angels of the earth. That's what I got in that. In the correspondence, that was what... And that 
came to me from this person, this man. So, dear listener, I share this with you because I ask myself now, struggling with the possibility of romance, frankly, the background of my own existence and personal history and very, very real PTSD, you know. What to do? Um, you know, and I think to myself, there was a, a song by Sheryl Crow. I don't know if you know it. From the, from the 90s, mid-90s, singer-songwriter. And this is what keeps coming to me, is her song. It's called Strong Enough. Because, dear listener, having come through all that, I think what I realized is that men who abuse women are the weakest ones. They're the ones for whom all of their unresolved pain and anger and darkness is projected onto the closest person to them and that may be very well their wife and this can happen between any two people you know any two partners even friends you know it can happen between any two people but in my case what I saw was that I was being held as the scapegoat for all of that pain and anger. And I realized that it was because the person that I was living with was not strong enough to deal with that in himself and face it, face it, you know, face it, and say, okay, this is me, and I have to deal with it, and I can't hurt anyone else because of it. So as I'm contemplating these thoughts as I'm reading this email from this incredible person that has suddenly popped into my life and asking myself, do I really dare to risk love again? These, <laughs> this song by Sheryl Crow comes to my mind, and like I said, it's called Strong Enough. And the words, sir, are ones I'll try and sing a little bit to you. And it goes like this. God, I feel like hell tonight. These tears of rage, I cannot lie. I'd be the last to help you understand. Are you strong enough to be my man, my man? When I'm broken down and I can't stand, Will you be man enough to be my man? So that is the song that has come to me because women need strength in men. You know, I'm going to sound like a real traditionalist here, but it's true. Women need strength. They have their own strength. But when a man is really strong, then that is the most 
God-given gift to a woman, that strength. That strength can buoy a woman. I'll always remember seeing <laughs> this little girl out on the playground here, tiny, two years old, three years old maybe, climbing up the sort of circular, you know, climbing thing. And she was by herself climbing, climbing, climbing. And she got up a bit, you know, she got up kind of high and looked down and suddenly realized that she was probably twice her height from the ground. And she suddenly got really scared and called out, Daddy, help me, help me. And out of the crowd of parents who were sitting by, waiting, you know, watching their children play on the playground, her daddy emerged. And he came over and he put his hand up and he sort of supported her as she was there on that climbing thing. And then she began to move her legs slowly up, up and up. And she got to the top and she looked down at her daddy and she said, I did it. Daddy, I did it. I'm here. I made it. I made it. That's what happened. I watched it. It was so beautiful. So, dear listener, men and women need each other, you know. We have our own gifts. We have gifts to give. And the strengths that we can give each other, that men can give women, and that women can give men. At this crux point in human history and the history of this world is going to make it, you know. So it's requiring people of real integrity, of kindness, love, vision, faith, strength. You know, there are frankly so many frauds in the world. What is a fraud? A fraud is somebody who puts forth a face but behind, the story is very different. And I'll always remember playing in a concert. I get compliments from people. You know, they enjoy the music when I play. They'll come up and say beautiful things. But this one comment really stood out. And in a, some sense, it was the most beautiful comment I'd ever received. A woman came up to me and she said, you know, she said, the feeling I have is that who you are is what I'm seeing. It's the same. Who you are on the inside is what I'm seeing on the outside. It's one thing. That's what she said to me. It was the best compliment I could ever imagine because she meant to say that she could trust what she was experiencing. How beautiful is that? So... I feel like I'm calling this thing into being. I'm calling my life into being. I'm calling out to the man who wrote to me and asking this question. Are you strong enough to be my man? And I put it out there. It's kind of a love letter. It's a bit of a love letter. I end with this question. Can someone who has come through what I've come through 
actually find love again, you know? Can someone who's come through what I've come through actually navigate the dual challenges of real post-traumatic stress, you know, of, of having been traumatized and of being able to actually love again? That's the question I end with. So with that, dear listener, I bid you adieu. Thanks so much for listening. This was an unusual podcast, but it's been on my mind. I wish you the very, very best now and always. Now and always. Thank you.